Hey, young and profiters, it's Hala. As our avid listeners know, my favorite way to kick off the show is to read the reviews we're getting on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, YouTube, and any platform that enables you to leave a review. This week, I want to share a five-star review from Kieran O'Connor. I've listened to a lot of podcasts over the last two years, and I wanted to give a massive shout out to Hala Taha and her podcast, Young and Profiting. Some of my favorite episodes include number 60, Unlock Your True Potential with Evan Carmichael, number 30, Rise Against All Odds with JT McCormick, and number 27, Cultivate a Disruptive Mindset with Jay Samet. Keep up the amazing work. We've had so many phenomenal guests, Kieran. I really don't know how you just narrowed it down to three, but thanks for giving our listeners a heads up on your favorites. And to everyone out there listening, I'd love to know what your favorite episodes are and why. The best way to do this is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform. And if you can't leave a review, share your thoughts on social. Tag us at yapwithhala on Instagram or halataha on LinkedIn. I'll definitely reshare, and I can't wait to hear what you think about the show. You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Halataha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. On today's show, we're chatting with Steve Anderson, author of The Bezos Letters, 14 Principles to Grow Your Business Like Amazon. Steve has spent 35 plus years helping the insurance industry understand, integrate, and leverage current and emerging technologies. He's also the president of the Anderson Network and a top 10 global insurtech influencer. To top it off, Steve has over 340,000 followers on LinkedIn and is known as one of the top technology consultants and speakers in the U.S. In this episode, we'll discuss the rise of Amazon and why you should act like every day is day one when growing a company, how Jeff Bezos Seizes risk strategically to grow Amazon and why Amazon focuses on their customers instead of their competition. Hey, Steve, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast. It's so great to have you on today. Oh, Hala, thank you for having me. This is a real pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about all the things that you have to offer to our listeners. You are the author of The Bezos Letters, which are 14 principles to grow your business just like Amazon. And the book is extremely well-written. It's well-researched. You got so many great reviews out there on this book. And in it, you distill 14 principles or business insights that we can use to grow our business. To give some context to my listeners as to why these letters are so important and what these letters are, each year, 
year, Jeff Bezos writes an open letter to Amazon shareholders, and these letters started back in 1997. And over the last two decades, these letters have been really a source of insight to the world to how Jeff Bezos, who is, you know, the richest man in the world, how he thinks about efficiency, how he thinks about the customer experience, retention, managing through crises, and much more. So I have a ton of questions related to your next, (laughs) to your latest book. But first, I want to understand, how did you end up writing this book? Because from my understanding, you're really from the insurance field. So how does that relate to what you wrote in the book? And why did you decide and get the idea to write this book? Sure. As you said, I've been in the insurance industry my entire career. The last 20 years, I've been a consultant about technology to the industry. And kind of in that role, obviously follow technology and all the changes going on and came to a realization a few years ago that the biggest risk I think businesses in general face is actually not taking enough risk, which coming from you know the, the risk management industry is just a, a weird way of thinking. And so I was looking at companies that had done things well and some that had not, you know, certainly the BlackBerry and the Blockbusters and Kodaks and Sears and, you know, a lot of them and and was trying to understand the difference. And that's when I came across Amazon and kind of through that research really discovered the shareholder letters. And I had kind of heard about them. Usually when they come out, you know, there's some articles about whatever Bezos is writing about in that particular letter. But I ended up actually reading them through in order. And at the time, there were 20 and was astounded at how much really information, I would say tips that Bezos talked about in the letters about how he thinks about growing Amazon. And realized that those are tips that any business I think can use. Yeah, that's really cool because I know that there's lots of books that analyze Warren Buffett's letters to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. um, But I think, are you the only book that distills Bezos letters? Yes, so far. I suspect there might be some other ones coming out. But yeah, I was surprised too, actually, when, you know, I kind of, again, continued my research. And again, there have been articles about individual letters, but not a deep analysis of kind of the flow of how he talked and how he changed actually kind of through the years too, in terms of his thought process. So I just became really fascinated. And, and frankly, I my first kind of iteration was I did a executive summary, one-page summary of each of the letters and was going to give it away as a lead gen, right? Here are some tips from Amazon if you're curious about how they do things. And fortunately, my wife actually is in the book publishing business, and I showed it to her, and she said, oh, no, this is a book. This is not a lead gen. And so that kind of started that process of putting it together into what was published last fall uh, in the book. So Very cool. Well, aren't you lucky that you have a wife who's in the book publishing <laughs> I, industry? I am. And uh, so I kind of had a little bit of an inside you know, track on getting the book published. But even more importantly, she is a co-author. She's an excellent editor and writer. And so your comment early about the book being readable, and uh, that's due to her. And so I give her the credit for that. 
That's sweet. That's fantastic. So it's it's been about a year since you put out the book. Has anybody from Amazon reached out to you or have you gotten a chance to talk to Bezos himself about it? <laughs> I get that question and uh, I have not talked to Bezos. I've had a, a handful of people either mention the book in you know Facebook posts or some things like that, but nothing directly that I've uh, been able to talk to. And and frankly, I, I people ask you know well why didn't you try and interview Bezos? And I actually felt like being an outsider gave me a different perspective in terms of looking at the letters as opposed to kind of interviewing. There's some already some really good books out there that, you know, the history of Amazon or a, a deeper dive into, you know, some of the inner workings. But I felt this coming just from the shareholder letters was a, a good position for me to be in. Yeah. And I mean, people who read the book, like nobody complained that you had no interviews from Bezos. Everybody said it was really well researched, that you had a lot of valid points and people found value from it. So as long as people are, you know, liking and enjoying the content yep. and, and find value in it, it doesn't really matter, like, you know, how you got to that outcome. So really cool stuff. So Amazon, as most of my listeners know, it's one of the fastest companies to have reached $100 billion in sales. Since 1997, Amazon's stock price has risen from $5 per share to now it hovers around $3,000 per share. When I checked yesterday, it was right under $3,000. Yep. And after studying Amazon and Jeff Bezos, you came up with 14 principles, which you outline in the book. So can you share with us some of these key principles um, sure. at a high level and why you think Amazon was able to achieve so much massive growth so quickly? So the 14 principles are categorized into four what I call cycles. So mm -hmm. test, build, accelerate, and scale. And as a business grows, right, from startup, at the startup, they're going to be testing a lot of different things. And then they want to build on that, accelerate that growth, and then actually then scale. And so that's the structure that I came up with with the 14 principles. So in the test cycle, the first, the actually principle number one seems to resonate with a lot of people, which is encourage successful failure. And that actually came, that phrase, and I think why it resonates with people is it's those words are not typically put together. Success mm -hmm. and failure right in the same phrase. It actually came from the Ron Howard movie, Apollo 13. So Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. 12 went back. 13 was just going back again as our third place on the moon. And if you remember that movie, uh, oxygen tank exploded, blew out the side of the service module. You know, at that point, the mission became a failure. Well, at the very end of that movie, Tom Hanks, playing Jim Lovell, the commander of, of that mission, is stepping off the helicopter onto the deck of the Iwo Jima after coming back, getting all three astronauts back alive. And he said, our mission, Apollo 13, became known as NASA's most successful failure. And that just always caught my attention in terms of, okay, what does that actually mean? Well, again, one of the themes throughout the shareholder letters is this idea that Bezos has that failure is necessary for success. And he talks about it in, in several different ways. At one point, he says, I think Amazon is the best place in the world for an employee to fail, right? Because we understand that's part of the process. And so experimentation absolutely has to lead to failure because if it's if you know the experiment's going to work, it's not an experiment, 
right? The whole nature is testing out an idea, finding out if it works or not. And so that idea is just woven throughout what he talks about and I think is a real key to, again, how they've grown. And also, they are unique in terms of the number of different businesses they've been able to create, right? So you have the e-commerce business, you have AWS, you have Amazon Marketplace, all the third-party sellers. You know, each one of those, they've been able to to start small and and grow. And, And here's where I think the current terminology gets it backwards. You have to start with an experiment in order to invent, and only then can you innovate. But everybody's talking about needing to innovate, but they're not talking about the work necessary to experiment and invent. And most companies, in essence, punish employees for failure. Yeah. Right? So you've got to, yeah, we want you to innovate and do all these things, but you better be right. And I'm convinced employees aren't actually afraid of failure. We all understand that that's part of learning, but they're afraid of the consequences of that failure, especially in a business environment. And I think that's where Amazon stands out as something unique. Yeah, very cool. Let's stick on failure for a second. So from my understanding, Amazon really builds on their failure to enable success. So for example, they had the Fire Phone and based on that failure, they use that those insights to then create the Amazon Echo. Can you shed some color and maybe provide some other examples in which Amazon kind of failed and then use their insight from that failure to build something different that did succeed? Well, let me talk about the phone because that you could argue that's their biggest failure. So that was uh, Bezos' pet project and uh, announced in 2014 a phone specifically designed really to shop on Amazon. Now, if you think about it, who needed another phone, right? We already had Android phones. We already had iOS. Uh, that was announced in 2007. And Frankly, nobody needed it. In fact, at one point, Amazon tried to sell it for 99 cents and they couldn't give it away. And so they wrote off $178 million in inventory loss and in development loss at the end of 2014. But as you mentioned, four months after the announcement of the Fire Phone, that hardware team, it actually comes out of Lab 126, that hardware team gave Bezos his first demonstration of what we would come to know as the Echo and Alexa, right? So Echo is the hardware, all the voice processing. By the way, that's astounding technology. I mean, if you can stand across the room and say Alexa and it recognizes your voice, that's a huge technological problem that they were able to solve. And Mm -hmm. then marrying that with the machine learning platform, Alexa, to be able to understand the question, look up the answer and give it voice uh, going back. It's an amazing product. And I I think we can say that's pretty successful today. Yeah. I mean, it's in like almost every household. I have another example. I recently had Jim McKelvey on the show. He's the co-founder of Square. And in 2012, Square put out a car reader. It was doing really well. It was like a fast-growing startup. Then in 2014, Amazon put out a similar card reader and they undercut the price. And so Square kind of thought it was their demise, they're right. over. But you know, they had this really strong innovation stack, which is what Jim McKelvey calls like, you know, layering innovation upon innovation, right. whether it's processes or hardware or software. They had all these different innovations that enabled them to actually beat and compete with Amazon. And a funny end to the story is that Amazon ended up, you know, shutting down their card reader service and then shipping all 
all of their customers square card readers as like a classy way of saying goodbye. So I thought that was such a great story. It is a great story. In fact, I just finished his book. It's the Innovation Stack and yeah. uh, was fascinated with his description exactly like you said. Again, I think for Amazon, you know, they saw that as a possibility and why? Why would they think of that? Well, that goes to another of the principles, which is obsess over customers. So everything at Amazon starts with a focus on the customer. In fact, one of the favorite phrases Bezos uses is, we invent on behalf of the customer. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting example because they were trying to make it better for the customer. They didn't understand the complexities of the payment. And, and again, I think you know, he describes very well they really didn't disrupt the payment industry. They actually just discovered a market that no one else was serving. So again, focusing on the customer. You know, at Amazon, no one asked for Prime, right? But again, if we're inventing on behalf of the customer, what is one of the friction points of shopping online? Well, back early on, it was having to pay for shipping. I, I can remember shopping and then going to the checkout cart, right? And then finding how much shipping would be. And then is it worth it? No, I'll just go to the store and I, I can get. It. But Prime took that friction point away and it was a crazy idea. You know, yeah. um, nobody at Amazon except Bezos thought it was a good idea. But he said, if it's better for the customer, it will be better for Amazon and better for our shareholders. Yeah, I really love how Amazon has such like a customer first mentality. I wanted to share a quote in his 1998 letter. He says, I constantly remind our employees to be afraid, to wake up every morning terrified, not of our competition, but of our customers. Our customers have made our business what it is. They're the ones with whom we have a relationship and they're the ones with whom we owe a great obligation. And we consider them to be loyal to us right up to the second that someone else offers them a better service. So yeah, it's so powerful. It's not about your competition, it's about your customer. Right, and, and that, that concept of, you know, be afraid of your customers is their focus. In fact, he goes on in a couple other places to talk about their focus being on the customers, not on the competition. So they don't wake up in the morning thinking about how do we beat our competitors? They think about how do we delight our customers? And mm -hmm. in an interview, Bezos said disruption. So, right, Amazon's Everybody says they're going to disrupt this industry or that industry. For Bezos, his mindset is invention comes first. Disruption is a consequence of other companies not inventing. You know, mm -hmm. so again, it's a, a bit of a twist and a different way of thinking. But absolutely customer first is very much their mindset. Can you give any other illustrative examples of how Amazon has put their customers first? Well, um, immediately comes to mind is Amazon Marketplace. So again, early 2000s, and, and this again, we'll get the failure in here too. Amazon went through two iterations before they actually landed on Marketplace. So the first iteration is they, they actually opened an auction site to compete against eBay, right? The problem is they didn't come, people don't come to Amazon to get auctions, they go to eBay. eBay kind of just had it. So that was a failure. And then they tried what was called Z Shops. And, and it was a separate website with a separate login where third-party sellers could access Amazon's customers. 
Well, nobody wanted to log in another place. And the third iteration was Marketplace. And again, crazy idea. Why in the world would we let other third parties be on our same pages where we're selling product and they may have the same product? But the customer focus is Bezos saying, if a third party has a better price or has inventory and we don't, that benefits the customer. And if it benefits the customer, it will ultimately benefit Amazon. And of course, by the way, those third party sellers pay Amazon a fee, right? To be on the site, to have access to the marketplace, have access to the fulfillment network that Amazon spent billions of dollars creating over the years. But that's a different way of thinking. And when you're customer focused, not competitor focused, that allows you to think differently about how you do things. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, again, it's customers before competition. Another great example of that. Let's dive into the topic of risk. You have said that Bezos is a master of risk and he uses risk to strategically grow. What are some prime examples of this? Well, every time they start a new product, it's top of mind right now because I just wrote an article on my LinkedIn newsletter about this, but Amazon Scout. So Scout is a six-wheel, kind of a small, cooler size that is autonomous that goes down sidewalks to deliver packages to people's homes, residential. Started experimenting with Scout uh, in 2017. They actually announced their first test. It was in a suburb of uh, in Washington uh, State in 2019, and they just announced this last week that they are coming to my t- where I live in Franklin, Tennessee, outside Nashville. And so I wrote this article, and you know, it just is such a great illustration of experimenting iterating, you know, so they have a whole team now that, you know, works on the autonomous software that works on the device itself, right? Uh, How big it can be, how fast it can go. 
and then now slowly working into other areas to, again, test the concept. But what's the risk? Well, failure, right? It doesn't work out. Well, one of the tools Amazon uses to reduce their risk is when they're coming up with these crazy ideas, they use a process called a six-page narrative or a six-page memo. And I can talk a lot about that, but what happens is Bezos in 2004 banned PowerPoint. It's never used anywhere at Amazon. And he requires a a written narrative, a story, a, a maximum of six pages that start every meeting that's exploring this idea. You know, so I absolutely know there was a memo written about Amazon Scout, probably in 2016-ish. And that memo is handed out at the meeting, not beforehand. And the first 10, 15, or 20 minutes is spent everybody reading the memo. Now, really interesting process, but to me, that is one of the ways they use to mitigate or reduce the risk. Because Bezos is convinced that writing out those thoughts on paper helps you think deeper and see problems quicker that they can then work on mitigating. So that's just one of the tools they use. And, you know, again, he just thinks very, very differently. And I guess the thing is, he's not afraid of taking risk. Mm. knowing it may not work. And again, he says in a number of different places, we've got to try things. And here's his great, uh, another quote, I think it's out of the 2018 letter, if I remember correctly, but it's basically the size of our risks need to grow as the size of our organization grows. If we're not taking billion dollar risks, and making billion-dollar failures, we're not going to move the needle enough to have an impact on our business. Well, who thinks that way? Yeah, such you know, a different actually, way. It's such a different way, yeah. So I, I do want to dig deeper on the memo piece. I think that this is really <laughs> interesting. Why is Bezos so against PowerPoint? And why does he prefer that memo structure? And what is the structure of that memo? What is the expectation in terms of the format that he gives to his employees? So first, let me talk about PowerPoint. He believes using bullet points or a PowerPoint presentation is lazy because you can hide behind those bullet points without having to really dig deep before you do that presentation. He also believes, in fact, at Amazon, uh, if you go to their job site, there's a section there that explains you may be asked in a, as part of your interview to write out something because the written word at Amazon is really important. So, and I do believe that to be the case. When you have to write out, it makes you think deeper and differently. You know, a lot of times for me, writing actually helps me think about what I think, right? Because having to put it into sentences and thoughts and words and paragraphs make you think differently. So what's the structure? It varies. I'll, I'll say that. So there's not just one way to do it. But basically, this structure is the first thing is a future press release. So the Amazon Scout, 
they actually write back in 2016-17 when they were first thinking about this idea, they wrote a press release that could be released in 2019. Mm, so future. So, cool. so looking forward, right? What is it that the customer is going to get out of this? What what are the benefits? What are the right all of those kinds of things? And and actually if you go to investor relations at Amazon and look at press releases, you can get an idea of how they structure those press releases. And I can almost guarantee that most of those were written years before the actual product announcement. So that's the first thing. Then they create an FAQ, frequently asked questions. And they, you know, who are the people? So customer questions, what are the questions customers going to ask about this product, service, or platform? What about the other vendors that might be involved with it? So in, in terms of Scout, again, I'm speculating. I, don't, I haven't read it, but the customer's asking, well, could this injure my pet? Who's going to watch it as it goes? What kind of packages can be delivered? And so they, they come up with these questions, and then they answer the questions. Literally, there are two answers to the questions. One is just a short Here's the answer. And the other is a discussion answer. So delving deeper into kind of the reasoning behind the answer to the question, et cetera. So I will tell you, I actually use this process, a six-page memo process for a project I'm working on that I was explaining kind of a new service I'm putting together uh, to a group of potential investors. And it was absolutely a fascinating process to actually not just kind of research and talk about, but actually to use. Mm -hmm. The meeting, and I did, I made, I didn't hand it out beforehand. I handed out at the meeting, physical written, right, document, took the first 15 minutes quietly. And wow, how uncomfortable for me was that, you know, expecting people to read it. But then the magic started because the discussion wasn't about explained this, I'd already done all of that. The discussion was about questions. What didn't I cover well enough? What more questions did they have that I didn't anticipate? The discussion was much fuller because literally everybody was on the same page. Yeah. I love that. See, I think that's so cool because at work, they call me the PowerPoint princess because I'm so good at creating these like elaborate PowerPoints and like their designs so pretty. And you can get away with not having that much information and putting on a great presentation. Like if you have a, a well-spoken speaker, it's kind of like a song and dance that you do at a business meeting. And, you know, people are kind of like wowed and they don't have many questions and everybody just like moves along. But when it's just a paper that you have to read, it's like the information is what's important. And everybody's just really focused on the idea itself instead of like the pretty colors or the speaker. Right. Or, you know, the song and dance around. Or it. even interrupting the presenter, right, with a question, but that question's going to be answered three slides down. So everybody mm -hmm. reading it, you know, kind of gets the whole picture. And then the discussion can be richer in terms of what's other questions do we have, et cetera. Yeah. And I love the idea of having the, the press release in the beginning. Again, it's like that customer first, what value are you presenting mm -hmm. to the world, to the marketplace? That's what the press release portion is probably about. And then the FAQ is like poking holes in it. You know, what are the different issues and how are you mitigating it or, or what's the right. answer to it? Right. Really cool stuff. And and I will say, Bezos talks about this in, in the, the letters and he says, 
one, you can tell a difference between a good memo and a, and a not as good memo. And he basically says a good memo takes probably at least a week to write, right? Because you write it, you edit it, you share it with others on the team, get their input, you set it aside for a couple of days and then come back to it. So it's a longer process. And some people have said, well, doesn't that slow things down? And actually, no, I think it's the idea of slowing down to speed up because yeah. then, then you can speed up. Now that we kind of know all of this, what are the problems we have to solve? What are the new things we have to invent? Now we can go after that and speed up the process. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also because they can quickly assess what's a good idea, what's a not, not a good idea mm -hmm. and kind of like not waste time on bad ideas just because, you know, somebody had a great presentation and convinced, you know, one right. or two people to to move forward. To move forward. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. So Going back to risk for a few minutes, everybody knows what ROI is, return on investment. That's a very common phrase, but Amazon uses another term, ROR, return on risk. Can you help define that for our listeners and help us understand how we can measure and track ROR? Yeah. So this, again, as you said, return on investment, right? We track a lot. If you know, marketing wise, if I'm going to spend X amount of dollars on ads somewhere, how many more sales am I going to get? And we're really good at looking at those kinds of relationships. But when it comes to risk taking, it, it is more nebulous. It's not quite as hard and fast. And so adding in that equation of what's your return on risk. And again, going back to Amazon, you know, they took a great risk on Amazon Prime but what's their return been? They took a great risk on Amazon Marketplace, but what's the return been? You now, both of those, Bezos identifies as, as one of their big bets. So it is harder to measure, but to me, it's a mindset of how do we invest in experimenting? How do we gauge, you know, again, success and failure in that process? How do we know to move forward with invention? And so it really is more of a mindset. And, and frankly, I'm still working on a formula to try, try and put some more weight around that idea. But the concept in the book and, I, and at Amazon is very much a mindset of we know we have to risk things if we're going to be able to move forward. Yeah. So I know that there's a risk of doing something and then there's also a risk of not doing something. Could you provide more color, break that down for us? Yeah. And, and that, that was kind of a core thought process as the book was starting to come together, because when it comes to technology, right, and I think we can all agree, technology continues to develop rapidly. And kind of one of my core thoughts was businesses don't have the time today that they used to 10 years or 15 years ago to kind of take a year or two and figure out this new platform or what's the internet going to do or right. You have a much shorter time period today. And so making a decision to not move forward or not embrace a technology or not experiment is perhaps a bigger risk, right? But most business owners, managers, whoever consider the risk being, if I do this, if I experiment on this new platform, this new process, this new service, that could be the bigger risk when in fact it could be the opposite. So absolutely, there's a risk of not doing something. And, and I would say 
back to some of those kind of, I would say, well-known examples, but that was BlackBerry, right? Nobody's going to ever want to type on a glass keyboard. They're always going to want a physical keyboard. Well, no, people's attitudes change. You can't do that. You know, Blockbuster, people are always going to want to go and rent from a video store. Well, no, Netflix showed that was not the process. And again, people's viewing habits changed. They still wanted to watch movies, but how they watched them change, right? So not, and, and by the way, Blockbuster had an opportunity to buy Netflix and they said no, Yeah. right? So again, not seeing the future. And again, that's one of the things that Bezos talks about is uh, the way he describes it is having a mindset of eagerly adopting new trends, right? So not being afraid of those new trends. And again, that's part of that risk-taking mindset. Yeah. All of this is so fascinating to me. I think Jeff Bezos and Amazon is like, it's just such a well-run company and they're kind of the biggest company in the world right now. I feel like they're <laughs> crushing it, especially during COVID-19. It's like, we're like, our lives depend on Amazon right now. So it's just so interesting. Yeah, so they're right up there in terms of just market capitalization. They're right up there with Microsoft and Google and Amazon. And um, so, again, I think there are reasons they're there. Uh, and uh, that's what the principles try. That's why I broke it down that way and try and highlight some of it. Because it's not just one, right? They're 14 for a reason. They all are stand on each alone, right? They, but they all interact with each other too. So that's part of what's difficult about kind of trying to look at Amazon and, and bring those things into your own business is you've got to think not just, oh, I got to do customer obsession, but there are several things that you can work together to enhance your own business. Yeah. Very cool. So I want to spend the rest of the interview really focusing on the letters themselves. One of the principles in your book is this phrase that Jeff Bezos used in his first letter in 1997. It's always day one, or he refers back to it in all his letters that it's always day one. Tell us about what that means and how can our listeners incorporate this idea in their daily lives? Yeah, so for Bezos, day one, as you say, he's, he uses it from the very first letter, and, and it's in the context at that point of the internet is so new that nobody knows. We don't really know what is going to happen. And so he, he says, you know, it's day one for the internet and day one for Amazon. And it really has developed over the years to a mindset of Amazon even as big as it is, thinks like a startup. And that's really hard to do, right? Because the problem is most companies that get successful like Amazon, success actually is their biggest risk because we get successful and we start protecting what got us there instead of actually killing, right, what got us there and looking at what's new, different, or what else we can do. And so he reinforces this idea of day one, and, and he ends virtually every letter with something, as you said, along the lines of, you know, it's still day one. And by the way, that first 90, 1997 letter, he has attached every single year to the, every new letter. So he actually ends the phrase with, as is my habit, 
I attach our 1997 letter, it's still day one. And in fact, in the 2019 letter, he ends with that, but changes just a little bit. He says, even in these times, right, talking about COVID and all the things going on, even in these times, it's still day one. So to the point for Bezos is that the office building in Seattle, where he has his office, has a plaque in the lobby. It's called the day one building, and the plaque identifies his mindset around this. But I think one of the best ways to describe the mindset is actually a question he got at an all-hands meeting. And the question was, Jeff, what does day two look like? And actually, there's a great YouTube video where he answers the question. It's probably worth looking up, but here's how he answers it. And I'm quoting from the 2016 letter. Day two is stasis, followed by irrelevance, followed by excruciating painful decline, followed by death. And that is why it's always day one. So that, that decline, and he says, you know, that could take years and has for many businesses, right, that are not doing as well today or have gone out of, I mean, Sears is the one that, that pops into my mind. But I think what's really interesting in the letter, he goes on to say, I'm interested in how you fend off day two, right? How do you stay day one? And he says there are four things that he's identified, at least right now, that are day one defense. One is customer obsession. We've talked about that. Two is a skeptical view of proxies. So in Bezos' use of that word, a proxy is any process or procedure that isn't thoughtfully used, meaning how many times have you heard a customer service person say, oh, that's not our procedure? Mm, well, if the procedure's not serving the customer, then let's not make the procedure the, the end all and be all. Let's make sure the procedure's still correct today. So that's what he means about a skeptical view of proxies. And I mentioned this one before, an eager adoption of external trends, keeping that future focused out there. And then fourth, finally, high-velocity decision-making. So he, he identifies those four as day one defense activities to keep a business, even as they grow and scale, in that startup mindset. Hey, YapFam, starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course, subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. 
Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, and she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify Magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. So you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. And that's all lowercase. If you want to start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you want to start that business you can't stop thinking about, if you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Yeah, that's really powerful stuff. I would encourage everyone to look up day one mindset and kind of like embrace that because I think it's it's really interesting and I think it can really help people be innovative, always like stay scrappy, resourceful, have a customer first mentality. I think that is really powerful stuff. Back when Bezos wrote this 1997 letter, Amazon actually, it was already big, it was already successful, but it was unprofitable at the time. I think profitability was something he was trying to argue against in terms of how people should value Amazon. Why do you think that people shouldn't judge a company like Amazon, at least at the time, based on their profitability? Well, part of what he says in that 97 letter is, with the internet and the early days of the internet, we believe that it's a land rush right now, right? So the idea is we need to invest and get out in front and become the platform. So our focus will be on the long-term, not on short-term quarterly profits. And he got hammered. Amazon and Bezos got hammered by Wall Street. And you have to remember, he actually came out of Wall Street. He, He worked for an investment firm in New York before he started Amazon. And so he understood that mindset, that needing to hit quarterly profits all the time. But also he said, we're not going to do that. And he talks about it at the end of that letter that, you know, if your investment strategy is, you know, to get short-term profits, profits to come in and out, we're probably not a good stock for you to hold, buy and hold. But if you think of the long term, we are a good place for you to be. And he says, I want to be clear. And again, I think we're seeing a theme here. He thinks differently. Most people would be, yeah, buy my stock, buy my stock. He's going, no, here's our philosophy. We're going to build for the long term. You will see results, but not in the short term. And and they weren't profitable. And I can't remember. I'd have to look up the exact year, but it was 10 years at least before they showed their first profit because they reinvested everything right into Mm -hmm. fulfillment centers and infrastructure and all of those things that now are paying off huge dividends. Exactly. I mean, anybody who invested in Amazon back then is has like 30x their investment at least. (laughs) Well, actually, I, I just read somewhere that 
in that early years, 97, 98, $100 in Amazon stock would be worth over $11,000 today. Just $100. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. I only bought stock like three years ago. So it's still profiting, <laughs> but it not that much. <laughs> so speaking of him, like thinking radically different in his 2001 letter, he talked about measuring um, Amazon by free cash flow. Can you explain why Bezos believed that free cash flow was the best metric for understanding the financial success of his business? I can attempt to. <laughs> this was actually, and I said this in the book, free cash flow was so important to Bezos as the correct measure. But I am not an accountant. You know, I'm not the financial analyst there. But as I understand it, and others out there can explain it better than I can, but having the cash available to invest is a better indicator of success for a company. And in fact, they do the legal right gap accounting in their 10K, but they also add this, these whole sections around free cash flow and where they are and what the numbers look like because Bezos feels very strongly that's a better measure of potential and the success of the company. So you're absolutely right. It Again, going against the grain, right, of what most businesses do. Yeah. And then now a lot of companies, I think, report that way and report on free cash flow. He like set the trend there. Uh, yeah. And I think he set the trend. I think there are more companies today that do that than back then because yeah. of, I won't say necessarily just because of him, but that thought process has um, made its way into a whole lot of other companies. Yeah. So let's fast forward to 2019. Uh, was his 2019 letter that talked about COVID-19 incorporated in your book or did that come later after the book? It came later. Actually, that letter was uh, released. So the letters are released the April after the year. So mm -hmm. for 2019, it was released in April of 2020. So that was not incorporated, was not available when we uh, published the book. And it's an interesting letter. It's a weird letter. I just say it that way. I still haven't gotten my head completely around it. And for the first time, I'm not sure he was the primary author of that letter. Now, all the other letters, you know, there's a flow and a cadence and how words are used. And I'm convinced he had help, I'm sure, writing them, but I'm convinced he had that final edit uh, before the letter was published. The 2019 was is just different in, in a couple ways. One is, obviously, the COVID-19 stuff and talking a lot about their response and what they're doing and how they're protecting employees. I actually wrote a, an article I'm trying to think of the timeline right now. And usually for the first time that I know of, he released a public letter to employees talking about their response to COVID-19 and what they were going to do and, and how they were going to protect employees and, and those kinds of things. And, and actually, I wrote an article in, uh, around you know how Bezos is leading in crisis and communicating and some of those things. And then some of that's reiterated here in the 2019 shareholder letter. Uh, and then the second half, it kind of just shifts second half goes into sustainability and you know and frankly amazon is doing great things in sustainability and those kinds of things and what i find interesting is people seem to think this is a new thing for bezos and it's not bezos was sustainability or sustainability and climate change and helping the earth and 
his he was valedictorian of his high school class in Miami, Florida. His valedictorian speech talked about how manufacturing needed to be moved to outer space, to orbit, Earth orbit, and that the Earth should become designated as a national park and people come there on vacations. You know, so this is not an idea that is brand new for him. And the whole reasoning behind Blue Origin, the space company that he started, is to create the infrastructure to actually make that vision possible, meaning getting into space cheap enough that literally, and these are his words, a college kid in a dorm room could create a space company. And and so I think he's misunderstood a bit in, in that arena because I've seen some stuff written of, oh, now he's, you know, coming, thinking about it. Well, no, he's been thinking about it since high school or earlier. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I never knew that he was really a big sustainability proponent. I definitely want to dig deep into that at some point and, and try to understand. I don't know much about his space company or anything like that, yeah. but really interesting guy. Great job on the book. Great job on the research. The last question that we ask every guest on the show is, what is your secret to profiting in life? Two things come immediately to mind. One is generosity. I'm pretty convinced that the more generous you are, the more that comes back to you as a individual and and as a business there. And I would say the second thing that comes to mind is I practice a pretty, I guess, structured would be the right way of saying it, but goal setting process. Uh, and so I have annual goals. I have I take those annual goals into quarterly goals, into monthly goals, into weekly goals, and literally I have, what are the three things I need to do today that will move me forward on one of those goals? Oh, very cool. And how often do you do that goal setting? So I review, I have a weekly review. Uh, So I actually review the week and what did I do well? What didn't I do well? And I update things monthly and then quarterly, and then a, a full a annual, like a day-long process of, of what goals do I want to accomplish? And, and they're not all just business. You know, some of them are personal yeah. hobbies, you know, things like that. Because again, I believe there's, there's more to business than just business. Oh, totally. Yeah. I interviewed David Allen. He is Mm. the inventor of the GTD GTD, getting things done system. And I think that, uh, that reminded me of his process. Absolutely. Yeah. No, uh, his book had a big impact on me, uh, early on. Very cool. So where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do? So the best place uh, for the book is thebezosletters.com. And if you'd like, there's some additional material workbooks to help you as you read through and work through the book and apply it to your own business. I've also created an assessment there that helps you understand one, your risk tolerance, and where in the four cycles and 14 principles might you and your business uh, have most effective use of right now. So no no cost to that, but you can access both of those on thebezosletters.com. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. It was such a pleasure to have you on. Hala, thank you. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or comment on YouTube, SoundCloud, or your favorite platform. Reviews make all the hard work worth it. They're the ultimate thank you to me and the Yap team. 
The other way to support us is by word of mouth. Share this podcast with a friend or family member who may find it valuable. Follow Yap on Instagram at Young and Profiting and check us out at youngandprofiting.com. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name, Hala Taha. Until next time, this is Hala signing off.